This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art, because doing good work takes time. I'm Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Caridini, and this is Season 4, Episode 7. And today we're going to talk about statism in an internet era. And what we mean by that is, recently, Russia invaded Ukraine. What? We're in an era where it seems very difficult for things like that to happen. It just doesn't seem like that's the sort of thing that should be going on in the 21st century. However, it does, and it may in the future, or it may not, and we're going to talk about that because it's a really interesting clash of kind of worldviews as well as ideologies and geopolitical concerns and there's a whole lot wrapped up into what a state means and what growing a state means in the 21st century so we're gonna take uh you know a flyby on a variety of those issues <laughs> they're just little ones we can cover them in half just an little hour ones oh yeah half an hour so we're gonna fly by on a couple of those issues and then leave some for future development in future episodes but in our attempt to talk about globalization, this is one of the episodes that we wanted to talk about first. And so it's taken us the middle of the season to get here. <laughs> That's how we roll. That's how we roll. That's one of the ones that we came up with on the list first, is that we're really fascinated by Russia, essentially. <laughs> so it's not just the internet, though we'll talk about how the internet is part of it. But in a lot of ways, we are in an era, ever since the fall of the Berlin Wall, that has felt, which is not to say that it has been, but it has felt, I think, to many people as though we are past, in some weird sense, an era where people invade other countries to take over their land, etc. You know, early in the 20th century, we fought large wars of expansion and defense against expansion and all sorts of things going on that way. Whether that was the Russo-Japanese War very early in the 20th century, whether that was each of the world wars, whether that was some of the ongoing conflicts outside the scope of those particular wars. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, that was a relatively normal thing early in the 20th century, and it remained a thing, as it were, even up through the middle to latter parts of the 20th century, albeit usually in the form of proxy wars between the major superpowers. Right. And those things were continuations of trends that have been going on since we've been recording history. In fact, it's pretty easy to construe nearly all of recorded history as a record of warfare, whether carried out directly or by economic means. Indeed. Now, that's not totally true but it's also possible to read like all of russia as one long war <laughs> with various pieces in between we want a warm water uh, port said all yeah. of russian history yeah they actually have an exclave that's out there on the atlantic ocean essentially which i recently found out about and had my mind blown <laughs> like it's a part of russia that's not connected to russia it's just i i had i had a, a moment where i thought how many times have I looked at a map and just never realized that there's this weird part of Russia that's not connected to Russia? But as you as you look at this broad swath of history, it seems to take a strange turn when you come to roughly 1990-ish and the end of the Soviet Union and all of that. And we come into this era where while there were still plenty of wars being fought over the last 25 years, 
You didn't really have any major players in particular, any of the global powers just, you know, invading other countries under whatever pretext. It just wasn't right. something going on particularly. China didn't up and decide to go annex Japan, and the United States didn't think that taking Canada was suddenly a good plan and invade, and so on. These kinds of things weren't happening. And then last year, Russia kind of said, yep, that's a thing that's going on again, and they annexed part of Ukraine. Which is remarkably weird. Now, that's not to say that America hasn't gone into various wars, and other countries have not had large-scale, long-term wars, but in some cases, these wars have been internal. So people inside the country right. are fighting against each other for various reasons, be they ethnic, political, economic, religious, uh, or territory-based within a country. And there also have been wars of excursion. Of course, we have both Gulf Wars and the quote-unquote War on Terror. Mm -hmm. And there are wars that are small-scale that happen between very localized places that are specifically about land. But in a large state geopolitical sense, we haven't had someone say, this land is ours now, with the exception of Russia a year ago and China in the South China Sea saying, these islands that we are building are ours now. And these are two very interesting phenomena because they, again, break the mold of what modern people seem to expect given the reaction that people have to these what would otherwise be very normal wars of uh, expansion. And also, they seem to go against basic tenets of what liberal, neoliberal, whatever type of liberal we are now, <laughs> policy would state in terms of the, the way that economies work. Now, neoliberal uh, philosophy kind of always would sponsor various types of wars just by the nature of its pre-assertions, but that's not what we're going for right now. What we are interested in is why does this happen, especially when people expect it to not, and will this happen in the future? Right, because there's been this expectation post-end of the Cold War, post-fall of the Berlin Wall, that we were in this sort of phase described early on as, quote-unquote, an end of history, an end to those kinds of big wars, that all these big territorial conflicts might be mediated by the UN, which was always the hope for the UN, mm -hmm. and so on. And not everyone shared those assumptions, of course. Not everyone agreed with the presuppositions that undergirded those institutional structures, much less the idea that we were going to get away from large-scale wars. But nonetheless... There was a feeling in the air that these things might be at least on a good long hiatus. And in the last 20-ish months, those notions have been rather put to the lie. And well, while— Well, uh, they've, been, they've been maybe put to the lie? <laughs> well, I mean, maybe? they've been put to the lie in the sense that Russia used actual military force and traditional means of but, political maneuvering. And yes, we didn't start a colossal war, but, but they did annex half of a country. But it's different because they didn't actually say they were doing it. <laughs> they did play the political games. No, I, I hear you, but... I'm not kidding. Like, they, they didn't just say, we own Crimea now. 
we have taken it. That was a thing you could do. Like that's part of what history is like is it says people came in with big guns and said, dear people of this area, we are in charge now. <laughs> Although love Russia. <laughs> it, it is worth note that at least in the last several hundred years of European history, that didn't usually happen without some sort of pretext. You, whether that was, you know, conjured up out of thin air or not, and it's quite arguable that the the Ukraine one was conjured up out of thin air. Well, we could argue that World War One wasn't exactly uh, pretexted on anything other than like rampant suspicion and fear. <laughs> right. My point, though, is uh, there have been those kinds of. Uh, dealings and games with it for a long time that's sure. not new sure yeah totally so there's definitely uh a sense here that and in the winning slowly sort of realm we say yeah unfortunately war is gonna happen womp womp alas we're not at the end of history uh, as much as we would like to be, as much as every generation appears to want to be the <laughs> end of history. This was the war to end all war. Oh, whoops. Ooh. You know, and I and I get that. Like, I get the sense that you want this to finally be the peace, to end all pieces. That's a thing that's deep in the human heart. And yes. there is theological ramifications for that deep and earnest desire. But from a statist sense... Yeah, this is always going to happen. We're we are definitely going to be going to be fighting wars. Um so that's one element of this. But the second thing is what is the future of statism in this particular world that we live in outside of the abstract right. philosophical one? This is where I'm fascinated. Is Russia actually going to keep Crimea forever? I think the answer is as long as they can get away with it. Yep. And that takes us to a question of assuming Russia's would-be answer is, yup, and assuming that China's answer about these islands in the South China Sea is, yup. We end up with two questions, and one is, are we going back into an era of imperialism of various sorts? And I, we could make a guess, but it wouldn't even necessarily be an especially educated guess, seeing as neither Stephen nor I are experts in foreign policy issues. Interested amateurs. <laughs> Interested but, amateurs. And even the experts don't have a whole lot right. of hard data for what happens in this type of you know situation. Right. Now, we have things we can extrapolate, which is you know essentially what experts work off of. But there are features of these two particular concerns that seem to be different than in previous eras. In particular, China's actually building land with which it then can contest. Yeah, which, which is, is kind of weird. <laughs> that's new. That's a new one on me, homie. Yeah. But it's part of a bigger concern that they have of being a part of the the world scene, as it were. They want to exert military power. They want to exert sovereignty. They want to show that they're not under America's thumb. You know, they have some issues outside of specifically grabbing land that they want to achieve. Russia right. just looks like it wants to grab land. Right. They're they're working on that whole getting close to the Mediterranean thing again, which they've been doing off and on for literally you know, hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. Literally all of Russian history. Yeah, it's remarkable. And so it's interesting to compare and contrast these two countries because of their their varying differences in why they're doing this. I think that to China, the land itself is kind of inessential. Like they're they're just building more military stuff on it. 
basically just say, haha, here we are, we're building a thing. Whereas Russia seems genuinely interested in the land itself. This is fascinating because we will be talking more about the issue of multinational corporations and companies that cross borders and these sorts of things. And we've talked about them in the past. It's fascinating that someone, anyone, any country is so interested in land when it seems that so many corporations and people and businesses and even governments seem to want to avoid land entirely and just <laughs> deal away with the whole problems that it proposes other than the, the cool bit about the property tax. Right. And, and so that really brings us to the open question of what do you do? I mean, I, I don't have specific answers to why Russia wants that other than, again, their desire for an open access to a warm water port because that's a well, thing. But and, and they like to be on the offensive. They like to be taking land and being seen as powerful. Russian military dominance is part of the Russian state identity. And so I think that has something to do with it as well, even though it does seem, again, to be like there were other places they could have taken over that probably would have been less terrible if they really <laughs> just wanted to take over something for the sake of taking it over. Right. And and so that's part of why I don't think it's clear particularly what their aims are apart from some of those broader ones. But then, again, you can turn this around and look at the United States and American hegemony and some of the same questions expressed in very different ways. And sometimes you're left asking, well, why does America do that? But I think one of the winning slowly questions is, as citizens of our nations, how do we think about these things? If you're someone who lives in Russia and is looking at what's going on as you take over part of Ukraine, that's now the Crimean chunk of Russia, how do you think about this and how do you respond well? If you're in China looking at the situation with these islands in the South China Sea, how do you think about these questions? If you're in the United States and the United States considers military action in this country or that as it considers economic actions against this country or that as part of flexing its muscles, as part of exerting that hegemonic force, how do you think about that? And how do we work as nations toward good, recognizing that for all that the nation state has some serious problems and that the current world order has some serious problems? Again, theological, eschatological hope and all that. But what do we do as citizens of this world situation, of this age where, yeah, the nation state can be a mess, and yeah, sometimes countries around might do things that we don't like? How do we think about foreign policy? How do we think about, you know, handling aggression against maybe a treaty state that we have? Do we think that it's expedient to let those treaties get uh, shall we say, interpreted generously or loosely? Or do we think that it is wise to make sure that you show a strong arm to prevent certain kinds of aggressions from getting out of hand? And how do we tackle those kinds of things as citizens of a global village, to borrow one of the common terms that's been battered around for the last few decades, mm -hmm. as citizens who, courtesy of the internet, probably have much more access to what things look like from other nations' perspectives than we might have, mm -hmm. as people who have perhaps more of an ability to make our voices heard in the doings of our own countries and in connecting with people in other countries. 
how do we put those pieces together in such a way that we're hopefully able to move the ball toward an end zone, as it were, that is good, rather than one that looks like nuclear war. Because one of the real dangers of this kind of statist aggression, of a patriotism gone wrong or a nationalism gone wrong, is that you can end up in out-and-out wars. And the fact that we haven't had one of these on a global scale in a few decades is great, but we would kind of like to keep it that way. We would kind of like to say that there is room for a healthy kind of nationalism, for a kind of limited and careful and thoughtful patriotism that is not whitewashing one's own history or whitewashing one's own foreign policy, and that is realist about the fact that nations exist to advance the goals of the people that live in them, but that does all of those things in a way that doesn't turn into shooting each other because... Seriously, war sucks. We don't really want more wars. Chris just made a sports analogy. <laughs> On winning slowly. <laughs> Crazy talk, I know. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a complicated thing. And the internet really has changed a lot of the ways that this works because now we have cyber terrorism as well as cyber warfare. There are plenty of instances that are disputed that may or may not have been right. cyber warfare or cyber terrorism. So no one has come out and said, yes, we are actively attacking. Well, or when they do, the North Korea incident with Sony is... <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's... that's Yeah. So <laughs> right. I'm, so, I'm still convinced that they actually confusing. did it. But, right. Um, so, and then America occasionally will say, yes, we did this three years ago. So there's, there's still a, a realm there... In that, in the same way that people don't say, dear world, we are about to go and take over this country in the way that people <laughs> used to, we also don't say, dear world, we are cyber attacking you, love nation. Because that whole retribution thing, mm, kind right. of not so awesome. Well, I mean, people used to not care if they were bigger and more powerful. But that's the whole point of cyber terrorism is that you can pull it off when you're not bigger and more powerful, right? <laughs> right. Well, yeah. And in in some ways, yes. <laughs> um, and so, so there's definitely an interesting aspect there that cyber terrorism has allowed people that don't have these massive organizations, these massive armies, these massive standing pieces of material to do damage on various scales. Attacking Sony is not necessarily what I would consider the largest scale damage you could <laughs> incur, but it's certainly different than... Uh, North Korea basically just sending out a PR. So, right. so there's definitely that. And then there's all of the news that you can get, and there's videos from on the ground that you can get. So we have videos of Ukrainians taking pictures of the sky and pointing out various types of, of planes. You know, this is an important piece of, of information or important pieces of information that you couldn't get 40 years ago in the same instantaneous speed that right. we have now and so there's a whole lot more danger in jumping to conclusions but there's also an ability to know the truth sometimes a lot quicker and i think this makes nation states both more jittery like more nervous to yeah. do things and that they know there are there are cameras everywhere essentially but also it gives them a sort of legitimacy in that they, if they can pull out their own camera footage, 
that does their own sort of spin control or their own sort of truth or a literally true set of things happening somewhere else that quote unquote justify this thing that was happening right. you know you you start to have television warfare and youtube warfare almost really in that sense that people are combating each other's ideas over violence through all of these these media pieces which is you know only the basis of uh, a gazillion journal articles on the topic so we're definitely not saying anything <laughs> that has not been said before but right and and one of the things that's interesting there is those kinds of things are totally new in one sense you couldn't just take a video and upload it to youtube for the whole world to see 10 years ago you certainly couldn't do it 20 years ago actually almost 10 years ago but not quite yeah. well you didn't have an iphone to pull out to do it with at least uh uh well i mean almost <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna have to start using longer longer we're time getting periods here. but the the kinds of things that people are doing with that and this goes back to something we've said often on winning slowly the kinds of things people are doing with that are not new the right. specific media are new and that does change the equation in certain ways the democratization of that kind of information gathering and sharing does change the equation in certain ways. But that being so, it's still true that propaganda is propaganda, and it yep. is still so that people of differing nations have always sought to present themselves in their own light and have always sought, to whatever degree necessary, to justify their actions. And perhaps they have more people to whom they feel obliged to justify their actions now because there is more of a watching global public. Mm -hmm. But there has always been that need because even in, you know, 900 AD, if you went on a rampage and assaulted your neighbors, you either had to completely crush them and win or be in a pretty rough spot when it came time to, well, negotiate your treaties. And if you were an aggressor and you lost, you were going to be in a pretty bad spot. So, yes, the particular dynamics have changed, but at some level, the human interest elements of it, the ways that people have to make these considerations, are just another twist on an age-old story. And that's one of the things that we see in many areas in technology. Technologies that appear always change the dynamics, and they change them perhaps in significant ways. Sometimes they change the scope. Sometimes they change yeah. the size of the audience. Sometimes they change the specific ways that people communicate. Mm -hmm. But but all of those things being true doesn't change the underlying trends. They might have different people involved in those trends, more mm -hmm. people, fewer people, depending on the particular technologies. Mm -hmm. But the trends are the same. People are people. Aggression is something we just see as a constant, uh, whether it's for economic reasons, religious reasons, philosophical reasons, uh, just simple ego and feeling the need to demonstrate that you are, in fact, not under someone's thumb or mm -hmm. to demonstrate that, yes, thus in such a country is, in fact, under your thumb. Both mm -hmm. of those are just flip sides of the same coin. And right. in all of those nations nation states have been the dominant and most effective way of carrying about those kinds of moves that kind of warfare whether out and out with guns or via political and economic strategies mm -hmm. and yet 
we haven't particularly come up with a better political solution yet. And yeah. I go so far as to say has that everyone's dreams of a new world order where it's just one actual great big global village and everyone gets along happily is in fact a pipe dream. It's not a thing that is going to happen because of things we talked about lately. The value of locality, the value of place, the value of shared mm -hmm. history. And as much as we can joke about Russia flexing its biceps, so to speak, uh, Putin flexing his biceps, which is actually a thing you can see on the internet if you and go leave looking. leave a link on the show notes. As much as we joke about that, nonetheless, there's something about Russia having a shared cultural heritage. And to be fair to the otherwise, I think, terrible arguments advanced in Russia's annexation of Crimea, certain parts of Crimea sharing more of that cultural heritage with Russia than with Ukraine. Those things matter. Place matters. History matters. The The way that we are connected to those matter. And I think as Americans, we can be somewhat uniquely, not totally uniquely, but often uniquely sheltered from that because of our weirdly, totally immigrant history for most of us. Right. And I think what's fascinating to us and what we may have to talk about next week is even though we have all of these digital tools that allow us to have a flat world in some ways, um, like we talked about a few weeks ago, we haven't started to put together at a large scale those elements, technological, personal, governmental, in a way that would allow for sort of transnational sorts of internet policing or development. The biggest thing we have is the EU, which is an agreement by 27, 28 countries to... And no look out, Britain might leave. Well, yeah, that's why I put numbers on there. There's, a, there's always somebody <laughs> trying to join the EU and there's always somebody trying to leave. So, but, we, but other than that, the EU, we really haven't sort of put together any legally binding structures that capitalize on the nature of the last 25 years of internet development. Now, at a small right. scale, we definitely do. Um, we had uh, a reader point out uh, script to us, which is increasingly popular in various places. So there's, there's almost always something we don't know on a small scale when we say we haven't done this. Like, we're, <laughs> we're, just, we're just aware of this. Thanks for pointing it out. We love learning new things. But at a, large, at a large scale, we haven't really started doing that. And it's interesting that we haven't, that there hasn't been a sort of move because of perhaps the blocking of the state in that the state wants to maintain its, its power as the dominant organizing form. But I think that's something we're going to have to develop more in the, a future episode <laughs> because true. we're running down time here. And so hopefully not to be too much of a downer on this episode. What we basically just said was like war is always going to exist and uh, people are bad. People are bad. And <laughs> people are also really cool. And nations do sometimes manage not to stab each other, which is awesome. And we should do more of that. But yeah, right. These things aren't just going to magically go away because the Internet makes all the things better. No, the Internet might enable some things, but people are people. We're going to have to keep dealing with our our worse angels regardless of what technological innovations come along. But we all do have, at some level, a hope for the end of history and the peace to end all pieces. And I think that's 
again, a theological concern uh, more than it can be realistically a uh, political and geopolitical one. Indeed. The song at the beginning of the episode, fittingly enough, was War Paint <laughs> On by Risley. We used it with permission. Please don't use it without permission. Thanks again to Andrew Fallows and Jeremy W. Sherman for sponsoring the show this month. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you can pledge monthly at patreon.com slash winning slowly or give a one-off at cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. As always, 10% of whatever support we receive goes to keep up the internet archive so that links which go disappearing because their servers go down or whatever else can be preserved. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. Recommend us in your favorite podcast app directory or just tell a friend. You can find the show notes for this episode with links to things we talked about, as well as to a picture of Putin flexing his muscles, and to the music and everything else at winningslowly.org slash 4.07. Last but not least, as we mentioned earlier, we do love hearing from you. We learn all the your, things! Send us your thoughts on Twitter at winningslowly, on our Facebook page, or via email at hello at winningslowly.org. As always... Thanks for listening.